Well, I'm so thankful for uh, all those who help uh, lead us in worship each Sunday. Very thankful for our music team and all the people that are involved in that. Jared, how many people throughout the year participate in the music team, would you say? 20 or so, yeah. And we probably have that many people reading scripture. Um, and all those things are important. All those things are important to help lead all of us. Um, and corporately in worship, and I'm so thankful for everyone who volunteers to, to do those things. And, and just you being here is also a um, tip to the hat to say thanks for being here so that we can all worship together. And anybody, anybody read uh, Jared's blog this week about, okay, a few people? There? Okay, yeah, it's really good. Five people, and they're all here, Jared, so me too, all right? It's really good just about the importance of not only being here, but being here on time and why that's important. And here, let me just say this. There's many reasons, but here's why it's really it's important. Because every person here, every person here is a participant in worship. And we, we, we worship together. And when one person is not here or, or misses part of it, not only do they miss out, but we miss out. Everybody does. And, if, and Jared, a few weeks ago, preached on um, uh, music. And part of the music is that we don't just sing to the Lord. The scripture calls us to sing to one another. And you can't one another if you're not here, right? Or if you miss the singing or anything like that. So just encourage it. Not only be here, be here on time. We don't want to miss anything. And, and we don't want to miss out on all that you bring. All right, is that a good encouragement? And if not, I encourage you also to read Jared, Jared's article. It's very good. Very, very encouraging and also challenging uh, for all of us to, to be here and be a part of worship together. All right, it's a wonderful thing. It's commanded, and it's also a joy uh, as well. Well, at this time, I want to dismiss um, our children. Hold on. No, hold on. Second grade on up is staying in here today. This is a fifth Sunday. So on the fifth Sundays, it's only like three of them during the year, they stay in here. So the rest of you up through the first grade are dismissed for children's worship, okay? Back there, Grace Kids, Miss Ashley has a sign back there. So those of you um, that up through the first grade are dismissed for children's worship. There we go. There we go. Yeah, all the ones you can't see their head but behind the, 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 the seat there. There we go. Now, some of you don't start sliding down like you won't get out, all right? Um, <clears throat> well, I want to invite you to take uh, your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts 13 as we continue in our um, study of uh, Acts and Missio Dei, the mission of God. And by God's grace this morning, we will finish chapter 13. That's verses 42 through 52. And the title of the message this morning is The Response to the Message of the Mission. The Response to the Message of the Mission. So would you go to the Lord in prayer with me as we ask Him to do what he, only He can do? Now, Lord, again, we come to You and we are asking You to do that. We're asking You to do what we can't do. Lord, we can't change our hearts we can't change our minds. We, we can't um, understand the truth that's contained in your word without you, without you moving on our heart and, and enlightening our mind to understand. And not only to understand, Lord, but to apply, to put into practice the truth and the implications from the truth that we'll see this morning. So, Lord, help us. Uh, help us to do that. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. 
that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, even to the dividing of soul and spirit, Lord. It gets down to the deepest recesses of our heart, Lord. We know that. And Lord, we're asking you to do that. Use your word to do that. And do in each one of us, individually, what you would have be done. And Lord, also do with us corporately what you would have be done, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a recent study uh, conducted by Lifeway Research uh, found that 80% of those who attend church one or more times a month believe they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. So those people who t- attend a church one or more times a month, 80% of those people believe that they have a responsibility to share their faith. And, and my guess is, is that that percentage would be higher here, that we all understand that hopefully that we have a responsibility to do that, But uh, the, the survey they did. But 61%, listen, have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. Let me say that again. 80% believe they have responsibility to share their faith with others, to, to tell people how they can become a Christian. Yet only 61% or, or, or 61% have, 61% of the people who were surveyed have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. Why is that? I mean, we, we, we should re- hear that and go, wow. Or, or, or there should be a sadness that comes over us when we hear that. Well, there are many lists out there as to reasons that people give as to why they don't share the gospel with other people, why they don't share their faith. Um, And on every one of those lists, fear appears in some form or fashion. Fear. Fear of different things. And, And two of the most common fears expressed had to do with the responses of the person who is hearing the gospel presented to them. So there's some kind of fear, all right, of something about that person or maybe what they will do that we're sharing the gospel with. All right? One of those is fear of rejection. We're, we're, fear, we're fearful that person will reject us. That's a fear. Uh, another fear is a fear of failure. All right? And then what, what do they mean by that? A fear of failure. Well, a, a fear that people will not trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And we call that failure wrongfully, but that's, that's usually how it's, it's framed. There's a fear of rejection, a fear of failure. And do these, let me ask this question, do those fears keep you from sharing your faith? Or, or do they at least cause you to be hesitant because of fear of rejection or fear of so-called failure? Well, I believe that the fear of rejection and the fear of failure are based on a lack of understanding of a Christian's role in proclaiming the gospel the message of the mission we've been called to. The good news is that this morning's passage of Scripture in Acts 13 addresses both of those fears and will give us a proper, a biblical understanding of a Christian's role in proclaiming the gospel. So this morning, as we look through and study these verses, 42 through 52 of chapter 13, I want us to observe the different responses to the message um, of the gospel and also notice the responsibility that Paul and Barnabas had in the process. All right? That's what I want us to see. And after I do this, after we walk down through here, so I'm going to point out some different things. You'll probably find some application or at least implications of what you should do based upon the passage we walk down through it. But at the end, I'm going to come back and, and point out at least three other things uh, that are strong implications and exhort us to 
put the truths of this passage into practice in our own lives. Once again, I just want to remind us, um, as hopefully I do every Sunday we're in the book of Acts, about the mission that Jesus gave the church. And this is so important in studying the book of Acts, that we understand Acts 1-8, where we see the mission uh, given out. But Jesus said this, as he got ready to ascend to heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. This is the mission that Jesus gave the church. is to take the gospel, be his witnesses to all these people in all these places. To get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've watched this mission being fulfilled, laid out before our eyes. We've watched it be taken from Jerusalem to Jaya, Samaria. And now we're in that part where Paul becomes the most prominent figure in the book of Acts. Peter was early on, now Paul is, and he is taking the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. That's where we are in the gospel, or in, in, in the sharing of the gospel that we have laid out in the uh, book of Acts. So Paul's on his first missionary journey, and he's now come to Pisidian Antioch. Now I'm going to show you this map again here. I'll start on this side first, since I started on the last side, all right? We're going to go over here. We're going to start Antioch, go to Seleucia. Then he went to Salmis, the, uh, Pampas. Then he came to Perga, and then he went to Antioch. And this is in Pisidian Antioch, okay? Or the, the uh, region also known as uh, the, the Roman province called Galatia, all right? So he goes Antioch, Seleucia, Salmis, Pampas, Perga, and Antioch. Now, there's an Antioch over here. We don't want to get that confused. And this region here, okay? All right, is is known as a, is a Galatian region, and in your book, as in your Bible, I pointed out there's a book called Galatians, and it's written to those churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. It's always important for us to see this and see this in context, not just only literarily, but also geographically and historically. So we understand later, maybe when you're studying the book of Galatians, oh, he visited all these churches. He's writing back to exhort them about different things. So that's where he is. That's where we find Paul on his first missionary journey. Um, so he, he, here in Pisidian Antioch, where he is now, he lovingly and, and boldly presented the gospel or the message of the mission to those gathered in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. We saw that last week if you were here. If you weren't here, uh, then you can go listen to it online, all right, and catch back up or just go read about what happened. Uh, but but what, what he did is he presented... It, this message, this, this gospel message, as part of history. It was part of history. This, this has been part of the, he's in the, he's in a synagogue, so he's speaking to Jewish people and also Gentiles who had converted Judaism. They had an understanding about what God's promises were to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that the Messiah would come through that nation, to that, from that people to the world to bring blessing to the world and salvation to the world. They had to understand it, so he places it in history. And then he presented Jesus' death, burial, resurrection as the central part of that message. And, and then after that, he presented that the, the gospel uh, was a fulfillment of prophecy, and he showed how it had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And he used David and some prophecies about David in particular and how they weren't fulfilled in David, but they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he urgently, at the end of the message, gave the invitation. And they sang, Just As I Am, 117 verses of it. 
All right, if you're a Baptist background, you'll, you'll get a kick out of that because you remember that if you're growing up. But they gave an, he basically gave an invitation. He urgently and lovingly called people to turn from self-trust and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so they may be saved from the penalty of their sin and be made right with God. Be freed from all things, it said, as we saw last week. He, this was what Paul did in Pisidian Antioch. So how did the people respond to the message that Paul preached? There can be all kinds of responses, but thankfully we see here this morning uh, that as we pick back up in verse 42, we'll see uh, how they responded. So let's look there in verse 42. We'll read down through verse 44 first in Acts 13. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So here we see the initial response uh, of, of Paul's message, of his, of his sermon, the, the presentation of the gospel. And notice again the initial response in verse 42. The people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. I love this response. Now, I can honestly tell you, in my 13 years here at Grace, I have never had anyone leave as I stand at the front on their hands and knees begging me. They cannot wait till next Sunday. Woo! I've never had that happen. Now, I have had people say, well, I can't wait till we pick up where we were last week. You know, but no, I didn't see the begging part of it. That was what kind of hurt me, right? And, and I had a few of those comments like that, hey, I can't wait till next week. And I'm looking forward to hearing what, what the Lord does as we continue studying this book or that book. But I've never had the begging part. I, I don't know. Don't feel obligated to do that today. All right. Um, although you won't leave until you do. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, that, but it's not the, that's still not the norm. And I'm not saying that you should feel like that. Again, I, don't, I want to be like Martin Lloyd-Jones um, who preached in London years ago. I want people not to leave here and say, hey, what a great preacher. I want people to leave here and say, wow, what a great God we have. Amen. That's what I want to happen. But, but the, just a response. They were so excited about what Paul had to say about the gospel and about Jesus. We can't wait. We were just begging, give us, please come back. Please come back. And that was, that was the way that they, they, they responded. It was positive. Now verse 43 even says that some of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. They, they, fought, they began to follow him. They followed him out and they went followed him around that week and just to listen to hear more. We, we don't know exactly, but it says they followed them. And then, and then it says that Paul and Barnabas were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. Seeming to point to the fact that they had come into the grace of God. That they had understood the grace of God, the gift of God of salvation. And they were urging him throughout maybe the week until the next Sabbath, the next, to next Saturday, which is Sabbath. And to, to, to continue in that grace. Not only did God's grace save you, the gift of God in Jesus, but his grace will sustain you. And continue in that trust in the power that comes from the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Another way to say that. This seems to indicate that there, there was some kind of true conversion, at least with some people. So there was also a general positive acceptance of the message. Verse 44, the next Sabbath near the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. That's never happened here, I can promise you that. All right, Nearly the whole city. But there was, maybe these other people told them, hey, you need to come. 
the synagogue next week. We don't know exactly, but th- there was at least some kind of, in the city, uh, Pisidianic, a, a positive response um, to the message. However, this was not the only response to Paul's message that we see beginning in verse 45. Look at verse 45 with me. It says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So here we see another response to the message that Paul preached, this message of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Uh, These two responses to the message of the gospel of Jesus were just not shocking. If you read the New Testament, it's all over the place. And in fact, when Mary... At 40, after Jesus was 40 days old and Mary and Joseph took him up to the t- temple after the days of purification. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Right? But after 40 days, there was a time of purification. They brought him to the temple to present him to the Lord. This is my favorite um, uh, passage of scripture surrounding kind of the Christmas story of all. Because it talks about my man Simeon. And this guy had been promised by God that he would not see death until he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And here he is, he's waiting, and they come. I don't want to tell the whole story because I'll get too excited and we'll preach Luke 2 today. And we're not in Luke 2, we're in Acts 13. But he's waiting, and he comes. I mean, they come to the temple, and there's Simeon. And Simeon just first praises God, Lord, thank you for letting me see this. And then he has some words of encouragement about who the Messiah is, and then he spoke some other words uh, to um, Jesus' parents and Mary in particular. So look what it says. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 33 and 44, 34, look what it says. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. A fall for some, but rise to others. There'll be a positive and a negative response to the message that Jesus brings. He will bring division. Did you know the gospel brings division? That the good news of Jesus Christ brings division? It always does. Always. You always see that in the scripture. And we see that in our experience in our world today. There, there's a division. Some embrace it while others reject it. So how do Paul and Barnabas respond to this opposition, this rejection of the gospel? So we've seen some believe. We've seen at least a a general, by the overall city, there's some kind of acceptance, but not a true belief probably on their part. And then we've seen an out-and-out rejection. So how do Paul and Barnabas respond? Look at verses 46 and 47. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Well, first of all, how they respond, they didn't back down. Oh, they rejected it. I'm so sorry. Forgive me for what I said. You really don't need to repent. You're not really a sinner. and need a Savior. I'm so sorry. And they run out. They didn't. They, they boldly stood and they presented the gospel and they, and they explained what the Jewish leaders' rejection meant. Why did these men reject Christ? And what's the repercussions of that rejection? So first they explained that they were being obedient 
All right, Paul and Barnabas were being obedient to take to the gospel to the Jew first. This is being obedient to Jesus Christ when he sent out the, the, the original disciples. He said, take it to the Jews first. And they were just following that lead. That they were going to take it to the nation of Israel first. And next they explained that the rejection of many of the Jews of the gospel means that they have judged themselves, look what it says, unworthy of eternal life. Now we would all agree that the Bible clearly teaches that we're unworthy of eternal life. We're unworthy. We don't deserve eternal life. The Bible teaches we've sinned, right? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the payment of our sin is death, eternal death, separation from God. We don't deserve eternal life. That's one way that, we're, that we are unworthy. But, but, but Paul's not speaking of that kind of unworthiness, the, the sinfulness of our, of, our, of our nature that separates us from God. Now we, we, yesterday, we, um, after 13 years in our house, began to rip up the carpet in the house. And you will not believe what we found. Not in the carpet, but listen, under the carpet. Especially the hallway. Six kids worth. Alright. Running up and down that hallway. Shoes on. All this kind of thing. And we vacuum, believe we do vacuum at least once a year. And, um, but we vacuum and vacuum and vacuum and vacuum. And we ripped that up. I mean, Joshua and, all, Joshua and I did the hallway for, and it was just dirt. It's like a dirt floor on the concrete. Because it, it, here's what happened, is that, that, that dirt got in there, and even though you suck a bunch of it up through a vacuum, it just works down the way down through, and then down through the pad, and underneath, it's just, oh, if you don't want to know what's under your carpet, don't pull it up, all right? It was nasty. But this is how it got there. It got, listen, it got there from the outside in. But we're born with sin from the inside. And it works its way out. That carpet, bad, that was bad, but we're worse, the Bible says. Because at the core of us, it says we're sinful. We're unworthy of eternal life. But that's, a not, that's not really what he's speaking about. He's using the word unworthy here in the sense of being disqualified. They're not qualified okay, for eternal life. All right? They're disqualified from receiving eternal life because they've rejected Jesus as the Savior. That's the qualification for eternal life. They're disqualified because they've rejected their Messiah. I love what S. Lewis Johnson explains. He was a pastor at Believer's Chapel and one of the teaching pastors there at Believer's Chapel taught at Dallas Seminary for years and years and years um, in, in Dallas area. He explains this well when he writes. He says, Paul is simply saying, you have disqualified yourselves from the possession of eternal life because you're not believing. Because he called them to believe. Remember that earlier? He said, believe and you'll be freed. And you're not believing. So you've, you've disqualified yourself. And this is how everyone's disqualified to receive eternal life. And because of the Jews' rejection of Jesus, Jesus, Paul says there, we saw in verse 46 and 47, the end of it, he says, Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Your rejection, now, the leaders kind of um, representing the nation of Israel, all right, the Jewish people, they're kind of representing as a whole, and most of them felt that way, not all. Most of them felt that way. Your rejection now is causing us to turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47 then says, for, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Hmm, the end of the earth. Sounds familiar, Acts 1-8, the remotest part of the earth. And that's actually a quote 
Those are two quotes from Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6. And thus, this taking the gospel to the Gentiles because of the rejection of the Jewish nation is a fulfilled prophecy. God said this would happen. And uh, God had prophesied over and over again the vast majority of the Jews would reject Jesus as Messiah and Savior and he would turn and offer salvation to the Gentiles. This is exactly what we see happen in Acts. Now, Paul explains this a couple times, but he explains it very well in, in his epistle, his letter to Rome. All right, we in our Bible, we call it Romans. And in chapter 11, let me just read a little bit from chapter 11 uh, for you. This is Paul. He says, I say then, they did not stumble. This is speaking of his fellow Jews, because he was Jewish. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by, the transgression, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. You make the Jews jealous. Now their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Yes, the Lord is bringing many Gentiles to saving faith in Jesus. And he's using it to make Jewish people jealous. That's what Paul says. So what God prophesied that would happen. He promised this would happen. And, and as far as I know, and again, if you're visiting here and I don't know you well, maybe you have Jewish descent. And praise God for that. But I don't think, as far as I know, nobody in our body is of Jewish descent. So we're the Gentiles. And that God is bringing us to faith in His Son as Messiah. And He's using us to make the Jewish people jealous. But, let me say this very clearly. He is not done with the nation of Israel. He is not done with Jewish people. And no matter what your view is on end times, whether you're dispensational, some of you think, what in the world is that? Covenantal, or somewhere in between. Romans 11, you can't get around Romans 11. You, you can't. It's clear. Even R.C. Sproul, who, who's a covenant theologian, who I respect greatly, disagree with him some, on some things on the end times, he wrote a whole book on Romans 11 saying, he's not done with the nation of Israel. He's not done with the Jewish people. So don't let our theology, our systematic theology, make sure we have everything duck in a row. Don't let it rule what we believe. Let the scripture rule what we believe. Because all people should look at Romans 11 and the New Testament and say, he's not done. He didn't cast them out forever. And how do we know that? Well, all of Romans 11 and other places. Let me Romans 11.25. It says this. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice it's a partial hardening. Not a fool. He didn't reject them forever. He's using the, the, the Gentiles in the church, and there's Jewish people coming into church as well, right? To make them jealous. They're missing out on the Messiah. And it's a partial, and it says until, he says, this partial hardening will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles are come in. And to all those Gentiles who would be saved from the penalty of their sin through faith in Jesus Christ are saved. Right? And, and then I believe that the scripture teaches, and no matter what your end times theology is, when exactly this will happen, understand this, there will be amazing, amazing and a marvelous revival in the nation of Israel, people who were born Jewish, and they will trust in Jesus as their Messiah. 
They won't come in because they're part of the nation of Israel. They'll come in because they trust in Jesus as Messiah, just like you and I do. That is clear in Scripture. There's no argument about that in Scripture. And why I'm on this, because I think often we allow our quote-unquote systematic theology to drive what we believe and reject things that don't fit into that. We can't do that. It's clear. Praise God. I want a bunch of people who were born Jewish to be with me forever and eternity. And every other nation, the Gentiles, right? The rest of us, under heaven. Well, that's not the main point here, but I think it's, it's clear and it's worth mentioning in our world today. Um, well, what was the response of the Gentiles in Antioch, Pisidian, to, to Paul's message that the Lord was bringing in to the kingdom a bunch of Gentiles? Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were saddened. If you're not following along in your scripture... You didn't get that. It doesn't say that. When the Gentiles heard this, they were, began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They rejoiced and glorified the Lord. Now, let me say this. This isn't the first time the Gentiles came into the kingdom of God through faith in the Messiah. It happened in the Old Testament. Early on. It happened in Genesis. And it's been happening all, all along. But here is a, a concerted effort and focus on taking the gospel of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the, nation, to the nations, to the Gentiles. And they're rejoicing and glorifying God, which is also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy the Gentiles, the nations, would glorify and praise God. Well, let me, let me read this last phrase here in verse 48. As many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. What are we to do with this statement? Now let me ask if you've ever read that statement before. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Let me read it one more time. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now if you're reading along with a, 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 a wanting to understand what do these words mean, that phrase should jump off the page. Wow. What does that mean? Has anybody ever wondered about this This passage before that statement wow wow what is that alright well let's look and see what it means notice the word or appointed or ordained alright in your translation it means to be inscribed on a roll to, writ, to be written down that's what the word means okay to, to be appointed a, a, a roll that would appoint someone, a, 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 a document that appoints someone, that gives someone a, a ability or power or a right or a position. All right, They were appointed or written in a book, it says. As many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. What book? I wonder what book this might be referring to that they were appointed. All right, I believe that the scripture teaches over and over again, there's like I think 20 references to something called the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. And I'll give you one of those in Revelation 13.8. says this, All who dwell on the earth shall worship him, everyone whose name has not been written. And now that's talking about, this is in context of Satan and where his destiny is. But it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, speaking of Satan, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. 
Like that this this is, has a reference to this appointing or, or, or ordaining, all right, all those who are ordained to eternal life believed. All right, and this ordination with those who have been ordained to eternal life, their, their name were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, notice what this phrase does not say in Acts 13. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Did you guys see that? It doesn't say as many who believed were appointed to eternal life. Now I know in a room this big with this many people there's some people squirming right now. I, I just want to be honest with you. I, I know you are. And I know when I, the first time I saw some of these things in Scripture and I really began to study the Word of God 20 some years ago and I read some of these things I hadn't read, hadn't noticed before, I began to squirm too. But I made a decision when I was about 22 or 23 years old I couldn't understand everything about God. Before that, for about three or four years, I thought I could. And I began to read more, and I began to study more, and I began to see things, oh my goodness, and I quit explaining away what the Scripture teaches even though I couldn't understand it, and even though I may not like it. I'm going to let the Word of God dictate what the Word of God means, and not me, if it makes me feel uncomfortable. There's lots of those things in Scripture. If you read much of Scripture, you go, oh yeah, there's a lot of things that make us feel uncomfortable. If somebody could just explain to me with no questions that I'll have the Trinity, I'd appreciate that. I spent, I remember I did a whole thing on the Trinity. And, I, and I, I, at the end I said, guys, we still got lots of questions about the Trinity. But it's what the scripture, it, it, the scripture explains to who God is. He's three in one. Do we understand all that? No. I, I don't. There's many other things in scripture. And this is one of the, it says, those who are pointed to our life believe. It doesn't say the opposite. God is the initiator of salvation and reaches out to mankind. The Bible clearly teaches that man does not seek God. Romans 3. They don't seek salvation. We don't want it. We don't want salvation. We don't want God to rescue us. Who do we want to rescue us? Ourselves. Because if we rescue ourselves, guess who gets the glory? We do. And we were born self-glorifiers. We love to worship ourselves. I'm number one. That's what we do. So God is the initiator of salvation. He's the one that seeks and saves the lost. Not the opposite way. And when people believe, they are responding to the work of God in their life. That's what the scripture teaches. This verse clearly points to the fact that God is sovereign in salvation. Now I know this makes people feel uncomfortable. And to be honest with you, it makes me feel uncomfortable too. Because although I am redeemed, I have a new heart, and, I, and, and God has made me new. He's, he's made me a holy one in, in His Son. And all those things, there's still the flesh that hangs on. And it just cringes at that because I still battle with wanting to be in control. And I don't like that, that God is the ruler of all. And He is sovereign over salvation. Now, I don't think there's anybody here that was actually on the pulpit committee when they called me. Or maybe on the phone. Greg might have been on the phone when they asked me this question. What was my understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation and the responsibility of man? Here's what I said. I said, well, I got, I got a lot of questions about it. I know that. I don't understand completely. But here's what I promise to you. If I come as your pastor and I'm preaching through the word of God. And it highlights the sovereignty of God and salvation. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to highlight the sovereignty of God of salvation. I'm going to preach what it says. 
But you know what else? When I come to a passage in Scripture that teaches plainly the responsibility of man, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to teach the responsibility of man. Because that's what the Scripture says. And, and as far as I know, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I've done that faithfully for 13 years. For 13 years. And just to let you know, if this is this, this appointed to eternal life, they believed, that's bothering you, it doesn't end there. Because look what it says. Yes, it clearly teaches the sovereignty of God and salvation, but it also teaches something else. Notice that they believed. They believed. Yes, it's true that no one will be made right with God unless he or she has God working in them. That's the appointed part, the writing down of all that, the sovereignty of God. But it's also just as true that no one will be made right with God unless they believe. You'll never find anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture, that someone was made right with God unless they believed. They had to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, you know what? If you find a place in Scripture, I said to this different, something, another subject to my 10th grade students in my 10th grade Bible class that I teach about something else. I said, on this particular thing, if you can find a passage in Scripture where somebody was made right with God without believing, I'll eat the page. Alright? I'll eat the page. Because it's not there. They believe. You have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. So here we see the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God and responsibility of man are laid side by side without any contradiction in Scripture. And sometimes without any explanation. I'm like, Paul, would you help us out here? I got, still got some questions about that. How that can happen. But he doesn't explain. Always. All right, another example I think maybe help you. Maybe understanding this, but maybe embracing it. Boy, I don't get it, but and I'm a little still a little uncomfortable about this sovereignty of God thing. It is, is, is found in Romans 13.1. It says this, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Now, this is an election year, isn't it? Yeah, you're supposed to say yes, yeah, so you have been ignoring everything, right? And I'm still not real confident in any of the people that are running right now. But um, that's for God to, you know, to hopefully bring up somebody rise to the top or something, right? But in election year, what do we do? What are we going to do this fall? We're going to do what? Vote, right? We're going to go vote. I hope we're going to vote. We should. We should be a part of that. We should go vote for the best candidate available for the United States presidency. All right, we're going to go vote. And we're going to exercise our responsibility... Right? As uh, men and women in this country and in this world to vote for the next President of the United States. And in a sense, we're going to put the next President of the United States in office. Would you all agree with that? Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Whether you like it or not, that's what's going to happen here this fall. All right? Now, yet the scripture teaches right here in Romans 13:1 that it's God who puts them there. Do you guys see that? It says right there. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Authority is established by God. But hold on, don't we vote? Don't we have all this election stuff and we vote? And then and, and, and I don't want the whole electoral votes, I'll just say this, majority wins, but it doesn't always win. I'm not sure how that works out. Still don't understand that. But somehow majority wins, right? We have a vote. Alright? And 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 that's what happens. But it says that God puts them there. But we have a responsibility to vote. Do you guys see that? The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, both true. 
But let me make sure that we don't this this is this is, we don't get this wrong. God is the God of salvation. He is the initiator of salvation. He brings about salvation. We can't miss that. But we must respond. We must believe. And if we don't, it doesn't matter if we believe God is sovereign or not. We must respond to his offer of salvation through his son. Is there a mystery in the sovereignty of God in response to man? Yes. But please, don't try to explain away clear statements in the scripture because they don't line up with what your systematic theology might call it to line up with. Wrestle with them. Be honest with the text. Let the Bible dictate what is true even though you can't understand it all at that moment. So I encourage you to do that because all of a sudden, no longer do we insist the Bible say what is true. We let the Bible tell us what is true. And we lovingly embrace that. And it's a great reminder to me. I just tell you this, when, when, when I go through here and I struggle with these kind of things, that I'm not God. And He is. And my God's so big, I'll never understand Him. Because if I understand Him, He's not worth my worship. Let's move on, alright? The, 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 the verse, 20, verse 48 stresses again that there was a positive response to the message of the gospel um, by the Gentiles. That God was at work in them and they believed. Alright, and notice what, what their belief leads to in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. Through the whole region. It doesn't say that Paul and Barnabas haven't left yet. These people who had been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, they began to spread the word in their region. That is a natural thing. When we have been freed from all things, freed from our sin, wouldn't we want to tell everybody else about it? And that's what they did in verse 49. Then notice a different response. There's a good response in verses 50 through 51. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. So the, the, the Jews, they, they uh-oh, <laughs> the people were responding positively again. We're getting ready to lose our authority and our power and our prestige. So we better do something. Let's incite all the people of prominence, men and women, in this city and tell them these guys are crazy and let's drive them out of town. And that's what happens. That's a negative response to the gospel. They reject again the message of Jesus Christ. And it says that Paul and Barnabas shook their dust off of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. What's this mean? Jesus actually said that to his disciples. If they don't accept you, shake the dust off your feet. What is that? Well, somebody who was Jewish, all right, if they would go into a Gentile land, defiled place, before they would come back into the nation of Israel, they would wipe the dust off of their feet so they would not bring any of that pagan soil into the nation. And what they're saying here, in, in response to this, we're shaking the dust of our faith, feet. We're not going to have anything to do with you who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. Well, Paul and Barnabas move on. It says that they, they go to Iconium. We'll look at that next week. But, they, and they, but when they move on to Iconium, they leave two different groups of people behind. They leave those who rejected the gospel behind and they leave those who embraced the gospel and were changed. Look at verse 52. And the disciples 
disciples are not talking about the 11 original or 12 original and, and, or, any, or talking about Paul and Barnabas. It's talking about the disciples, the follower of Jesus Christ in Pisidian Antioch. The disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is who they left behind. People who had been freed from all things. Freed from their sin. And they were continually filled with joy. And those of us who have been freed from our sin, there should be a joy about us. Unbelievable. And they were continually filled, being controlled by the Holy Spirit who lived in them now. That's what he left behind. Those who rejected, those who embraced. Well, so what? What are we to do with all these? Hopefully there's some great things to apply and you've already seen that. But let me just exhort us this morning by saying, first of all, be committed to spreading the message so others can respond to the message. We've got to be committed to spreading the message. Alright? In verses 46, verses 48, and verses 49, you see this. What is the message? Verse 46, the Word of God. Verse 48, the, the Word of the Lord. Verse 49, the Word of the Lord. That is the message. The Word of the Lord. Take the Word of the Lord whose central message is how someone could be made right with God. And that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has died for sin, so we might be free. Secondly, be encouraged that the response to the message is not your responsibility. There's no reason to fear rejection. There's no reason to fear failure, as we might call it. Because they didn't respond positively. Those aren't our responsibility, are they? Whose responsibility is it? God's. Ultimately, it's God's. And if those people reject, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected God. It's not our responsibility to change hearts. We can't do that. We can't believe for someone as much as we'd want to. Paul in Romans, he says, if I could believe, basically, for my, my, my brethren who are Jewish who are rejecting Jesus, I'd do it. But I can't. We can't. It's not our responsibility. And, and this idea of somebody who doesn't respond to the gospel, when you share it with them, that's failure. That's unbiblical. That's not failure. This is not your responsibility. Thirdly, be amazed at God's work and the response to the message. Be amazed at God's work and the response to the message. That God would take somebody, the scripture says, that are enemies of his in Romans 5. We were enemies. But in Ephesians 2, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. That we have sinned and that sin separates us from God. He takes people like that, which is you and me. And it says he takes out the heart of stone. And replaces it with a heart of flesh. With a new heart. With a new nature. That loves God. That embraces his son, Jesus Christ. That wants to serve the Lord and glorify God. That's amazing that God does that. Now, this whole thing about the sovereignty of God thing, I know some people are still trying to wrestle with that. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Every time I come to a passage of Scripture with either one of these, I'll just keep preaching like I do. Because that's what it says. Even though we can't embrace it all and may, it may make us uncomfortable. Let me say this. This helped me one time. Somebody shared this with me. Imagine that you're a, a, a guy. You're just kind of a poor guy living in a poor village. And you don't have much, you just kind of work hard and you kind of have a little, little, little one-room shack over here you live in and that's just all you have. And, and all of a sudden the king shows up to your village. He says, all eligible bachelors, line up. I'm looking for a husband for my queen, for my, for my princess, for my daughter. 
So they all line up. Alright? And he goes up and down that line. He looks. That line, he's looking for somebody to be the prince for his princess. And he comes to you and says, I choose you. Now your response would not be, well that's not fair, how about all the rest of these guys, man? How about them? Give them a shot. Would anybody respond that way? No way. I mean, she's gorgeous, guys. All right? No way. You go, here's your response. Who, me? I'm undeserving. So when we think about all this, the words like election, which are in Scripture, predestination, the sovereignty of God and salvation, when we think about that thing, don't think about, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, how about that guy? No, that's never the response in Scripture. In fact, they move on and that, that response never happens. All right? It's always, who, me? I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your, to, 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 to be a son of yours. Not, not me. That's to be the response. So I want to encourage you then to be amazed at God's work in the response to the message. In your own life and the life of others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of salvation. Not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. And Lord, that you work in your way to bring about this change in the hearts of people. And you call us to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might be freed from all things. That we might be forgiven. So Lord, my prayer is, if there is someone here, and I'm sure there are, some ones here that have never turned from their self-trust and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins to be made right with you. Lord, I pray that that would happen today. That they would do that. Or be pleased to open their heart and their mind to see that. And Lord, for those of us who have, may we rejoice in your amazing grace toward us. And while you were yet sinners, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.